It only takes like one or two. Because without shin guards, full powered, a full blast low kick to the thigh or to the calf that we're seeing in MMA now, yeah, the fight can can be over. I mean, we saw it kind of with Connor. That's one of the many tools that Dustin kind of used to like beat up Connor. But in every fight, a leg kick is a useful tool. That's a big thing. I meet a, a client and like I tell a client, I'm like, yeah, so my last fight, you know, I kicked this guy in the head like five times. And they'll be like, no, you didn't. There's no way you could do that. And then I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then we- Sorry, I'll kick you in the head five times, see what happens. What is up, fellow freaks? I'm Zach, your host of the Ogzoro podcast. And this time I sit down with Houston Ariaga. Houston is a professional Muay Thai fighter, my trainer, and now friend. About nine months ago, I was in solo quarantine, questioning my life, going a bit insane like many other people. And I was looking for an outlet to expend that insane energy. I came across Houston on Instagram, who was giving outdoor Muay Thai sessions during quarantine. And I said, fuck it, let's do it. Also, I had always deep down felt like a bit of a pussy because I never learned how to properly defend myself. The past nine months have been a beautiful, violent, and fulfilling journey, which also happens to be the name of Houston's company, The Beautiful Violence Club, which is at The Beautiful Violence Club on Instagram. In this episode, Houston and I discuss what it feels like to actually be in a professional fight with another grown man trying to beat the fuck out of you, training on shrooms, Logan Paul and Jake Paul entering the fighting game, a training session where I broke down in tears like a little bitch, and growing up in the hood, Houston, not me. <laughs> Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with fighter and my friend, Houston Ariaga. I'm here as Houston Ariaga. Hey. The man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> it's a big claim, yeah. I, I, well, I'm going to back up that claim. Okay, solid. I think a good place to start before, before we get into the, the claim of the man, the myth, the legend, mm. is the first day that I trained with you in Brooklyn in... Prospect Park, Brooklyn. When you first saw me walk up, what were your first thoughts on me? What, when you first saw me, when I hit you up on that app for trainers looking for a guy to train me in Muay Thai and then we first met, what, what were your first thoughts about me? Um, honestly, whenever I, I, I meet a client for the first time, it's the, the first thought is like, okay, what's this guy's angle going to be? Because... Just being in New York City in general, like everyone has like an angle. Either want money from you or they want something from you or they want to sell you something. So, you know. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm not here to fight. I'm actually looking for a, a loan and I am $50,000 of debt and I don't want to, <laughs> I want to, instead of learning from, uh, instead of learning about fighting, I actually, I originally was thinking about coming to you for a loan <laughs> and then I saw your Instagram videos and I was like, oh shit, I, maybe this guy should teach me to fight. <laughs> Yeah. So people people look for an angle from you as a trainer when yeah. you first get into it. They always have. Yeah. That's crazy to me because literally my only angle going to you was to learn how to strike. 
and overall get into the art of Muay Thai, of course. But the one, the only thing on my mind was I haven't really interacted with many human beings during quarantine. Yeah, yeah. I've been lifting weights exclusively for four or five years. I wanted to do something more exciting for working out. And I felt like a little bitch because I'd never got in a proper fight outside of some shoving matches in baseball. I didn't know how to defend myself at all. If I got into a fight, I, w- I wouldn't have known what to do. So that, that was on my mind. I was like, I want to be more confident. I want to obviously uh, learn the art of Muay Thai and also look for more interesting way to work out. That's kind of been my goal too, though, to like teach people quickly and uh, properly how to just learn how to fight. There's so much like, you know, there's so much uh, BS out there. And um, a lot of these group sessions that you see from Muay Thai, MMA, boxing, don't really like get you to where you need to go. You'll have to learn it by yourself. So it's better to just pay for privates from someone who actually wants to teach you how to fight. And, uh, and then you'll learn quickly. Like me, I had to go do the sport for years and uh, get a bunch of like, you know, beatings basically to kind of figure it out. But, uh, you know. So you're, you're doing, you're getting beaten for research. Pretty much. Yeah. And figuring <laughs> out how to become a better fighter. That's what I feel like when we spar. Yeah. I'm getting beaten down for research, research purposes. <laughs> no, nah, but I mean, you do a good job though. I mean, cause the first thing, like when I first met you, I instantly know like how athletic or strong you're going to be. And I knew just from you playing baseball, I knew from uh, your build, I knew you were going to be a pretty strong athletic guy. So um, when we first started training, I was like, all right, I got to hold these pads hard because this guy is going to have all that twerk from, uh, from baseball, you know? It's, uh, you're the only athletic person to ever tell me that because I'm used to being around baseball guys, which obviously fighters are still, they're strong, they're quick, but baseball is just a different type a of different, yeah, force. Yeah. You want to apply, a, you need to apply a lot of force mm-hmm. to hit the ball 400 feet in a very small amount of time. You need mm-hmm. to apply a lot of force in a small amount of time to throw a ball 93 miles an hour. And so mm-hmm. for my entire career in baseball, up until sophomore, junior year, I was never really a guy who would be considered above average mm. pitcher. And so among my baseball friends, I'm always someone who's joked about being as the unathletic one <laughs> because I basically taught myself how to move fast and be strong once I was in college. But I came in as just a 152-pound beanpole for someone who's six feet tall. Yeah. And th- that's why it's funny when, whenever you say, whenever you talk about me in terms of being athletic or mm-hmm. kind of looking like I'm an athletic type person, I always think back to my friends that play back a video of me running a six yard dash in eight seconds, which if you don't know, it's fucking horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally <laughs> like I was walking yeah. uh, back in high school. So, I mean, I, I still feel though, like you can tell though, when you see a guy, like whether or not he's going to be strong or he's going to be like uh, in tune with his body. And uh, you're also not like uncoordinated. So uh, there's a lot of people that are trained who are like, I have to teach them basically like what's forward, back, left, and right, and properly how to move, you know, because they just don't have a good grasp on like coordination also. So the first thing you look to teach someone when you first get into doing a lesson or whatever it is, you meet them in the park during Mm -hmm. COVID is (laughs) you try to get their coordination down. For the average person, they may not be coordinated if they haven't played a sport. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, first thing I do is I make sure that there is a you know some COVID regulation going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some uh, some you know have you quarantined? Mm-hmm. You know, do you not have the virus? Okay. Then after that, yeah, uh, coordination, <laughs> teaching them the basic movements, um, learning about them as a person, mm-hmm. their goals, um, and also you know uh, just being real with them that like you know if you want to learn how to fight, you got to fight. You know, and and uh, just kind of making sure that they're not going to be you know weak about it. I kind of like, you know, you were willing to take some sparring sessions and to mm-hmm. be okay with that, you know? But there's a lot of people that, you know, just pushing them a little bit or hitting them with the pad during a pad session, they, it's like they lose their mind because they've never like, they've never had that reality check of like being hit. Well, that that's part of what I wanted when you, you were saying that people have these ulterior motives, whether, I don't know, they want money or they want to fuck you or something or like yeah, I'm both yeah but, uh, both yeah <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure the training the 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 dark depths the dark web of the personal training world has its own uh marketplace but um for me that part of getting hit was exactly what i wanted in doses at the beginning obviously i didn't want to come in and just get fucking brain bashed the first day. Yeah. Like if you did that, you would be uh, a trainer. terrible cr- yeah, yeah, you yeah, got to teach. You, what always stuck with me is the first time we sparred, you said, I'm not going to teach you or, or I'm not going to use anything on you that I haven't taught you to defend. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that because yeah. I know there's, I'm, you know, I'm sure there, there's egos. Trainers are like anyone else where you have an ego or you want to show your client. Yeah, this, yeah, is, yeah. this is, you know, how capable I am or how powerful I am. So when you told me I'm going to only use the moves on you, I'm only going to kick you in ways I've taught you to defend. I've only, mm-hmm. I'm only going to punch you in ways I've taught you to defend. That to me was like, oh, okay, like mm-hmm. this is how I'm going to get better. He's going to throw shit at me. I'm going to learn how to defend it. Or if it, it's, uh, and then if I don't know how to defend it, I'm going to learn it in the upcoming sessions. And then that, becomes part of the game. So it's like you get power of learning a different strike, but then now you also have the responsibility of defending that because if you teach me how to do a head kick or Mm-mm. body kick, whatever, certain combo, then that means that's up for use by you yeah. going forward as well. If I just go in on you, imagine the first time we met, I'm just yeah. like, yo, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're just doing a full five minute round MMA sparring, grappling, elbows, knees, kicks, punches. You don't even know how to box yet. Yeah. I'm just throwing you in there. It, it's just not fair. So um, we started off with kick sparring. Yeah. For the first time we did, uh, we did kick sparring. I cried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Legitimately. I, I would say I, I, had, I had some things going on in my life. Yeah. And that were more personal. And then mm-hmm. I would say about 50% of that was the pain. 50% of that <laughs> was the personal stuff where I was going through some relationship things. And then that emotional shit that was going on in my life was, I feel like th- that pushed the pain past a certain threshold where any other day, not that there's anything wrong with crying, but it was like, yeah, it hurt. No, nothing. And then I, sat down and I just started crying and I had no idea what was going on. I was like, I could, literally couldn't stop it. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like, uh, I'm used to that too, though. Um, I've had, you actually are not the worst experience though. Like, you know, just crying wasn't the worst. I've had people throw up on me. Yeah. Yeah. Someone threw up on me one time. 
What did you, uh, was it from a kick or punch or something or just at the end of a session? We were uh, doing pad work and uh, they just got so, it was their first session and they were just so tired. They were also a smoker. And the guy just like I said, cross, he threw the cross, he missed the cross. I was like, okay, what happened? And then he just threw up on me. And uh, I was actually at the gym that I train at and I had to like clean it up and everything. But I'm used to like that kind of stuff happening to me and not being, you know, a douche about it. You know what I mean? Like there are a lot of guys who I know who are trainers who are like, kind of like dirtbags a little bit, mm -hmm. you know? Like they're not dirtbags. They just, um, they'll make fun of you, you know? I've kind of like, I've thrown up after sessions. I've had sessions where like, I've even cried or just, you know what I mean? Just like being a fighter too is like, it's hard where it's like, you know, some days you're like the nail and you get your ass beat and, uh, and then, you know, you kind of like, damn, like, why am I doing this? You know? So I, uh, I kind of understood your pain a bit when in that moment, that's why I wasn't really like, you know, yeah, and don't get me wrong, that those fucking kicks hurt like a son of a bitch. Like, <laughs> and the shin guards, it was the shin guards that I had were a little bit short because I hadn't bought my own shin guards yet. So, yeah, that it was the, it was kind of right on the edge from where my shin guard started, and my knee, yeah, was, my my uh, shin guard stopped and my and knee started, and like right in that gap. And I also wasn't spacing myself correctly. That's something I'm working on too. But I was like, holy fuck. That gave me a new appreciation for being kicked. Yeah. Because yeah, I, yeah, yeah. going into it, I, you see the, the visual aspect of fighting, especially in MMA. I feel like we talk about it. A lot of guys don't utilize their kicks or their checks as much as they could. And so from watching UFC, the overwhelming factors to me were grappling and striking. And so I came in knowing, okay, I'm going to strike. And then once we started doing kicking, I, I realized how much I underestimated yeah. being kicked and how much it fucking hurts like a motherfucker to the point where now if, if some dude, if I couldn't run, cause that would always be my first option. But if some dude came up to me, and was like trying to start something. The first thing I would be thinking about is how can I just kick this guy in the leg so yeah. he can't walk? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It only, and it only takes two, honestly. It only takes like one or two because without shin guards, full powered, a full blast low kick to the thigh or to the calf that we're seeing in MMA now, yeah, the fight can can be over. I mean, we saw it kind of with Connor. You know, that that's one of the many tools that Dustin kind of used to like beat up Connor. But in every fight, a leg kick is a useful tool. That's a big thing. I meet a, a client and like I tell a client, I'm like, yeah, so my last fight, you know, I kicked this guy in the head like five times. And they'll be like, no, you didn't. There's no way you could do that. And then I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then we- right, I'll kick you in the head five times, see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't try to kick you guys in the head. I yeah. try to keep everything low, especially you. You're so tall and so short. You know, I, it's, you know, I'm trying to kick you in the head. It's just too much now. I appreciate that. Yeah. It would be hard to do podcasts with CTE. Yeah. I, I could get it done. There would just be a lot more spacing between words. It'd be like, <laughs> so what was I going to say? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, we, uh, whenever I spar in the gym afterwards, if we have a hard session, we start yelling at each other. We go, CTE, CTE. It's, I don't know. There's, there's a bit of that. Like a CTE chant. Like, yeah, yeah. Cheerleaders. <laughs> yeah. Give me a C. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give yeah. me a T. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty, it's pretty meat heady. It's pretty meat heady, but obviously you don't want to get CTE, you know? 
Yeah, we have to put that in as a disclaimer. We're anti-CTE on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Just in yeah. case the, the yeah. CTE gang comes after us. <laughs> yeah. So, so something I wanted to get into is how did you originally get into fighting and, and Muay Thai specifically? Because we met up, this was June of 2020. So you had already been fighting for, I think, six or seven years uh, been, Muay Thai. been Muay Thai for seven years. How, how did you originally get into Muay Thai? What drew you to Muay Thai? Well, I, I started boxing when I was six because um, I'm Puerto Rican, half Puerto Rican. And um, like, if you're Puerto Rican, you know the national sport is boxing and everyone boxes on that island. Like, it's just, it's part of the culture. And um, both my parents boxed, my grandparents boxed. And, and so that was great. I, I grew up boxing and competing in boxing. As I got older, I think, I kind of distanced myself from my dad because my dad went to prison. And um, I ended up sort of like in a time period where I wasn't competing. And uh, I, funny enough, I went to video games and I, uh, mm-hmm. I found uh, the UFC, the old UFC games. And I uh, started playing that and I was like, damn, this is it's pretty crazy. Then I watched uh, WEC for the first time. And I don't know if you know Anthony Pettis. The name sounds familiar. He's the guy who ran off the cage and did like a cage run head kick. And that was the first MMA fight I ever saw. And then after that, I was like, all right, I need to go to jujitsu gym. I went to a place in the Bronx. I couldn't afford it. So I asked him if I could like clean the gym. And I was able to. And, and then I started competing in jujitsu. But eventually, same kind of deal happened. Like I started like… After doing six years of jujitsu, I, I kind of realized that like… I was this boxing jujitsu kind of guy. And I still didn't feel like fully… I didn't feel like I could still use my full body, you know? And so um, I ended up looking for a Muay Thai gym in the city. And uh, yeah. So you started with jujitsu first and then you got into Muay Thai around the time you saw that first fight you were saying with Anthony Pettis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I got into jujitsu because of the Anthony Pettis fight. Even though like him running off the cage and kicking the guy in the head wasn't jujitsu, mm-hmm. it, it was just MMA started to interest me. And then, you know, once I realized that that's not what you do in jujitsu, I realized that Muay Thai was kind of the way to go because I was actually a really good boxer. And then funny story, the first time I ever sparred Muay Thai, um, I sparred this champion from Bangladesh. I was a kid. I was like maybe 16. This kid, this guy was like… This is the first time you sparred Muay Thai? Ever. Ever more. I was really, I had really good boxing. So I was lighting guys up, but this guy was a different level. I didn't know how to use my legs the way I do now. This guy dropped me with a body kick. Yeah, dropped me with a body kick. And I remember like it hit me right in the liver and it's like a surge of pain came through my whole body. And and after that, I was like, all right. And so, uh, yeah, I, I started skipping school to go to Muay Thai. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Yeah, I can't believe you sparred a champion from Bangladesh, your first time yeah. in Muay Thai. Yeah. And you get dropped with a body kick. I feel like a lot of people at that point would be like, fuck this shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you got hit and you felt like you wanted to keep going. You wanted to figure out whatever it was that that guy did to you to open you up. Uh, yes. But also I think just from boxing, I knew that I had better hands than the guy. And I knew if all I had to do was get in and… I'd be able to light him up. But because of those kicks, man, those kicks. And then once I finally got in, I started getting better. Clinch was a whole different world. Elbows, knees, tosses, throws, you know? Even with doing jujitsu for a while too, like it was hard for me to stop them. And uh, 
Muay Thai ended up kind of becoming like my full time thing. Like I do love MMA, but I don't think I would ever want to do it for real, for real. I think I just want to keep going pro and Muay Thai and just stay that path and kickboxing and go down that path, you know? What makes you not want to get into MMA as much? Because you do, you have the background in jujitsu. You said you did it for a while. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like knowing how to grapple and strike and kick would be a good foundation to do some sort of MMA match. I'm definitely open to an MMA match one day for sure. But I think there's just something about like elbows, knees, kicking, punching, and just staying on the feet and just throwing down like that. There's something about it that the intensity, the speed, uh, the culture, um, it's pure. Like MMA is very like, there's a lot of like talking trash now. There's a lot of like this and that. And, and that's great for the entertainment value mm-hmm. and to pay fighters, you know? But I like that raw, like, you know, gritty kind of energy that a kickboxing and Muay Thai has right now. And uh, it's not very popular. I'm sure you guys don't even know, like, what's a major promotion, you know? In Muay Thai? In Muay Thai. No, no. I, I've been watching a lot of the free fights on UFC on YouTube channel, which shout out to UFC. They've been putting out everything over quarantine. And so yeah. I've been waiting for those fights to come out on YouTube. And I've caught some Bellator matches, some people you told me to check. But yeah, the, the only people that I've seen on Muay Thai are people that you send me videos or, or people you tell me to check out. I feel like it's not nearly, no one's casually watching Muay Thai nah. matches if they're not involved in the sport. But there are a bunch of people that watch UFC that have never fought at all in, in any sort of circumstance. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's unfortunate because Muay Thai has some like stellar characters and, and the best, like, like there's, there are friends that I have who spar guys in the UFC and they give me like footage of them beating their, you know, behinds, you know? Like big name dudes. Big name dudes. That's like, I see a video of my friend beating them up and I, me and my friend go toe to toe. You know what I mean? And uh, it's kind of funny. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, Anyone in particular that stands out? Nah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say gonna anything. Nah, spot. I'm not gonna blow this spot. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Not like that. Well, let's go back to the yeah. uh, the story, the story trash talking aspect of UFC. Yeah, because that is something that fascinates me. And I got into UFC within the past four or five years. So right around the rise of McGregor and and seeing all the, I feel like the UFC gravitates towards storylines and characters. So when you still have to win fights, of course, but it's it's like there's such a gravity of having a great storyline. And McGregor played up the the Irish background, came from poverty, came from welfare. He created this whole story around him. He's trash talking and shit talking people, which kind of seems like off the cuff, but I think some of his genius is being able to think of the things that he's going to say to certain guys in press conferences, whether it's one-on-one or it's kind of the panel of UFC fighters. And he just fucking like picks dudes off regardless of what they say. They come at him and he has a response for everything. And as a podcaster, maybe he just does it off the top of his head. And it's, he's just that type of dude. I wouldn't be able to do that. As a podcaster, I appreciate the, the content that he puts out outside of the fights, especially the, the trash talking storyline aspect of it what's your what's your take on if you're going to be a guy that's in a promotion like ufc you not only have to be a good fighter but you also have to develop to develop some sort of storyline or character around you for better or worse 
my take on it is that like McGregor was awesome. Like inside the ring, outside the ring. And his trash talk was also like really funny. He was good at it. It was like he yeah. it was an art of trash talking yeah. watching McGregor. Yeah, I, I think there is such a thing as tasteful trash talking as well. Like I do think some of the stuff that happened with Habib in regards to Connor was a little bit extreme. And then uh, I think sometimes people kind of do it a little bit too much. But um, honestly, you know, they're just trying to make a paycheck, man. You know what I mean? And, and kudos to them for trying to make a paycheck. It's not my style, you know? And uh, I'm not going to hate on it. But I definitely, I do, there's something about the fighters though that don't talk trash. That just go in there and, you know, rain hell on you. Like, yeah. like Habib, who's just, he's just silent. And he's just sitting up there and he just, I will smash you. You know, there's something yeah. about that that's like, that's kind of cool too. You know what I mean? Like, obviously Habib is famous because he beat the crap out of McGregor. But... It seems like even someone like Khabib, who's more reserved and doesn't say as much as McGregor, yeah. still, in some ways, he almost plays up that character, I think, of being from Dagestan, kind of like the mysterious aspect. Because mm. there's nothing really mysterious about Connor. He posts everything. He talks about what he does. He pulls up on a yacht to to fight week. He's he's gonna flex on you and let you know. There's something about Khabib the the mysterious aspect and whether he's playing it up or not, or people just take it like that. It's like where does like does he sleep? Like does is he Batman? Like like if someone told me tomorrow Khabib was Batman, I'd be like. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes you sense. Know, you have yeah. no idea. You don't really know what he does outside the ring uh, other than a few guys that he's let in that have done these mini documentaries of him on YouTube where they'll go to Dagestan. But it's it's such a... I feel like he's such a tight... He formulates everything around him so tight outside the ring that that becomes a character in itself. That mystery. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. They're probably just different too. Mentally out there, I, I think... Uh, that part of the world, they just, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, you talk to Russian people and you're like, okay, you're different. There's mentally, like they're in a different place mentally or any any person in a just a really distant part of the world mm -hmm. from us. People in Thailand, just they have a different outlook at the world. And so I, I also just think that it might be mysterious to us, but I notice a lot of Russian people are kind of like that, you know? Just they're kind of very much about like hard work and like working in silence, I feel. Yeah, and he's... He's Muslim too, right? Yeah. So I feel like the whole, there's a lot of abstaining if you follow the Muslim religion. There's a lot of sacrifice, things you're allowed to do, things you're not allowed to do. And I feel like I, I grew up Catholic, so I can't say anything from experience. It seems like that element of abstaining and self-sacrifice controlling what you're eating in a lot of ways, what you'll have to drink, consume, that seems like it would play into the fighting aspect of it where you need at least some of that to become a good fighter. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. I mean, uh, Kamara Usman is another guy. He's, he grew up Muslim. Uh, tons of dudes. Um, Actually, um, my mom was Muslim. So I kind of grew up Muslim as well. I had, you know, there's a lot of praying and all that stuff that happens five times a day. I'm not, uh, I wouldn't consider myself today that, you know, but uh, for sure, it definitely plays a big part. Like, I feel like bad about drinking and I feel bad about like not praying five times a day and all that type of stuff. It's like a Muslim guilt. Yeah, it's like a Muslim guilt. That I can identify with because there's Catholic definitely guilt. a Catholic guilt. Yeah, yeah. Catholic guilt's like, 
no sex before marriage, drinking, drugs, go to confession, tell a priest you <laughs> jerked off to fucking wild ass porn the past two weeks. And he's like, say 10 Hail Marys, 10 Our Fathers, and yeah. you're abstained. And I'm just like, it, it sets you up to feel guilty about doing a lot of things that are normal, which is the negative aspect of Catholicism. And it sounds mm. like being Muslim too. Yeah. And there's a positive and negative to everything, I guess. With the the discipline, it de- definitely be, being Catholic, I don't know, m- maybe the guilt, the, the guilt doesn't feel good, but I'm sure it has some sort of useful value to me going forward where maybe I wouldn't have done some of the dumb shit that I've done or taken it as far as I would have if I didn't have religion. And I, and I don't believe in God now. I'm an atheist and but I have like the programming of a Catholic. I can yeah. never get away from that. And I feel like there's just definitely some useful guilt going on that keeps me from going to a place that would not be good. Yeah, it would be dark. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, um, I've been to some dark places personally, you know, but I don't know. I, I, I don't really feel like it's been religion that has pulled me out of that. I feel like it's just been like my own self, like, you know, realizations, you know. Which is like, if people need that, great. You know what I mean? Great. More power to them. Like, you know, I wish I could be like Khabib, you know? (laughs) What's a realization that brought you to a dark place or a realization that pulled you out of one? Either way. (sighs) I mean, I've told you before, like, just being a brown kid in the South Bronx, you know, there's not a lot of like, you feel like there's not a lot of options for you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, you see a lot of your friends kind of going down the route of like shootouts, gang violence prison, you know what I mean? Just That seems to be the consistent thing between like poor minorities of particularly Puerto Ricans and African-Americans, you know? And there are other groups too, but that seems to be constant. I think besides Muay Thai pulling me from that place, I think I just had a realization that like, I don't want that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, like I, as much as religion can help people, I feel like there's also a big self moment that you have to have regardless of religion or or anything that you believe. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to pin like me getting out of a dark place just on some like, it doesn't always have to be some like being outside that descended mm-hmm. upon me with its light for me to get out of that dark place. Like, it just kind of just came from like within to be like, nah, I don't want that, you know? And um, I feel like uh, that's hard to do, but uh, yeah. Seeing a lot of your friends or people you knew in your neighborhood go down a path, whether it's violence or prison, that cultivated some sense of within of you not wanting to be in that same place. Mm, yeah, no, definitely. Also, um, I, I did want to talk to you about this on the podcast because I thought it would be a good topic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. When I was a kid, funnily enough, I can't even speak English. Is that CTE acting up right now? That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> Live CTE. CTE. Ad, ad for CTE. <laughs> CTE. Yeah, when I was a kid, uh, the SWAT team bust into my home. And um, I was in the shower with my mom. I was a baby. And uh, my mom was giving me a bath. And my father, I told you, went to prison. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is a big moment for me. You vividly remembered… How how old were you? I was really little. I was maybe one or two. One or two. But I remember being… My mom had me with both her hands. She was dipping me inside the bathtub. And uh, we just heard a big on the door. And then I, I uh, see uh, my mom open the bathroom door and I see my dad fighting the SWAT officers. And uh, to this day, he still has like a scar mm-hmm. on his head from 
getting to the end of his head because he assaulted one of the officers. That was a big moment for me. That's a that's like one of my first memories as a kid. That's a fucked up first memory to have. I, th- I think my first I think my first memory <laughs> I was like drinking fucking milk or something from. <laughs> but uh, no, that that's something I wanted to get into because we come from two different places. I grew up in the the toughest neighborhood on the planet, <laughs> Plainview, Long Island, the whitest Jewish, most Jewish neighborhood you could uh, yeah you could ever think of, and there's a privilege in that aspect of being able to control how I want violence to come in or come out of my life in that aspect where if I wanted to get in a fight as a kid, I could decide if I wanted to do that. And I did it maybe twice. But if I didn't want violence as a part of my life, no one was ever going to come knocking to do it or no one was ever going to like mug me on the street or no one was ever going to... Like I never saw a gun. So I was like 19, 20. I... Saw him on TV, never really got in fights. Like I never, I didn't understand. And I still don't fully understand because I never lived it. So I'm only hearing about it from other people who grew up in rougher neighborhoods. But that's something I wanted to get into with you of like the mentality of growing up in a neighborhood where you can't separate yourself from violence or, you know, people want to beat the fuck out of you or weapons and, and shit like that. It's rough. <laughs> it's it's rough. I, you know, I, I don't want to make a big like disparity between me and you to be like, oh, you can't understand. You know, I, I think you could if, if you know, if you just look long enough, you know what I mean? You'll see, you know. I could, I could understand yeah. at, a, at some level, at, at a deeper level. I don't think I'll ever be able to understand it at the depth of someone who grew up in that type of neighborhood because there's one thing, just like you'll never be able to fully understand what it's like to grow yeah, up in a white yeah, 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 yeah. Like All this shit that goes on where I'm just like, that's like the typical like Long Island thing. Like this. So, but yeah, like what, could you speak a little bit about what it was like navigating that element of growing up in the Bronx and being in situations where you, it, it was just part of growing up in the area, whether it was like violent or people trying to, fuck you up and because violence came into your life before you allowed it which was not the same with me yeah yeah um first time i saw a gun i was like 11 or 12 and someone gave me a gun it was my grandfather uh i freaked out gave it to my mom i I was also just like a kid who didn't want to be involved in that kind of stuff you know i don't know what why that was the case you know and i think muay thai for sure boxing for sure kept me away from that kind of stuff but I definitely got entangled with it somehow. More than anything, I, I think it's a mentality that if you don't grow up with, it's hard to get. I think from the outside looking in, you know, people see like, what's, what's wrong with these neighborhoods? How come there's all this and that going mm. on? How come, you know, how come you see that cracked out dude at the MTA train station, you know, just sitting there yelling at everyone? But there are like societal reasons for why that that's the case, you know? And the difference is between like, say a neighborhood, like where maybe you would have grown up versus where I would have grown up is that like those people that are in the train station live in my neighborhood, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and, uh, I definitely think, you know, I don't want to get too deep into like history and all that stuff like that, but definitely, you know, slavery pays a part, you know, of things and just the effects that people haven't answered from those things, not to, not to make, you know, excuses for anyone, but I think the hardest thing about those environments is, uh, just, remembering to check your ego. Mm-hmm. That will keep you alive most of the time because 
even though I can fight really well, you know, I'm not afraid to admit that like there are plenty of times in my life growing up in those environments where I had to be like, yeah, I'm going to back down from that situation because I don't see the good outcome. And then even in an environment like New York, if a dude assaults me, pulls out a knife, come attacks me and I smoke him with like a hook cross, you know what yeah. I mean? And a low kick, you know? I still got to go to jail because this psychopath that you couldn't protect me from assaulted me. And uh, that's, the, that's the reality in a lot of these neighborhoods for kids. It's like, even if you defend yourself, you're going to jail too. And, uh, you know, I, that's, like I said, ego checking was the biggest way for me to navigate through it. Yeah. You know? And we, we talked a little bit about this too, but there's a, there's a certain amount of stress that's good for you. And be growing up in a, in a suburb like Plainview allowed me to, and with the help of my parents also, who played an immense part in who I am today, that allowed me to bring stress into my life in a controlled way where I could, they would let me ramp it up or be like, this is too much. Like maybe we'll cut it off. And then I'll be like, no, nah, like, fuck you, mom. Like I'm going to do this anyway. Whatever. <laughs> um, being grown up in a neighborhood like that allowed me to kind of have a valve of stress where I could turn it up or turn it off if things got too much. And it sounds like from where you grew up, it was more like uh, people can't really control whether it's being in physical danger or uh, not being able to pay for shit. Like there's a certain amount of stress that once you go past that, it's not good for you anymore. And it just fucking breaks you down and walking around. Like if you're fucking people are trying to, physically threaten you or you can't pay for shit you're just angry the, the, yeah. like it's hard yeah, to yeah. it's hard to be a good person and lift yourself out of that environment and when i said i i don't understand where you come from i i mean i'm more like that like i've only been able to do what i have done or what i haven't done with the tools that i've been given from where i've grown up gen genetics what, how my parents raised me. And so I've experienced being able to do hopefully great things uh, and, and a lot of shitty things too with, with those settings, like with that programming. I don't know what it's like to... Th there has to be a certain amount of like weighing on you and emotional shit, physical shit that eventually just breaks you. And it seems like a lot of people when uh, they're like, oh, like, you know, lift yourself out of your boots, like from your bootstraps out of the hood. Like I used to kind of be like that when I was a teenager. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, why yeah. can't these people just yeah, like yeah. go study in the library and like go to, like, go, yeah, yeah, go to yeah. school and like lift themselves up by their bootstraps when like my parents were paying for all my shit. Till I was like 18. And, but there's definitely an element of being in that environment and, and the stress getting too much to where it would fucking break anyone. If I was in the same situation, I would have definitely turned out a lot differently. I feel that too. And you're right. There, there's a certain level of pull yourself up by the bootstraps that is required. But man, I, I got to say, man, it's, it's definitely more than that though, for sure. In these communities, like if you go to the South Bronx, you go to Harlem, like, and I know people like to say like, oh, Harlem's hipsters now. You know what I mean? It's not. They're crackheads on every part of that area. The projects are still full of minorities, still all the same violence, Kids, the same kids whose dads went to prison, they're going to prison. And now they're having kids with, with no dad mm -hmm. around. It's the same cycle happening over and over again. And uh, the main thing I felt like growing up in the Bronx was that I felt we were forgotten about. And so 
in order for me to get out, I had to be like spectacular at something. You know, mm. fighting was that for me, you know? And that allowed me to like meet different kinds of people. I started having clients in high school, you know? But I have to admit that like once I left the Bronx and I started going to the city in Brooklyn a lot, which was like a different world for me, I was uncomfortable around like uh, other kinds of people, particularly white people. I, I was really- am I, am I making you uncomfortable right now? Nah, nah, you're not making me with, yeah. with the light flashing off my, yeah. <laughs> my pale Casper-like skin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, nah, I, I was uncomfortable. I didn't know how to like speak to uh, white people. I didn't, I, or if I did speak, you know, like I felt be, like I was being judged or I felt uneducated or I felt like, you know, it, it was just hard, man. Even like I've dated white girls before and that was, that was a trip. What's, what is it like dating a white girl? As a suave Puerto Rican. As a suave. <laughs> Lebanese Puerto Rican. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they definitely want you to like… They look at you a little bit like a porno. A little bit. Really? Yeah. Like it's a little bit like… Not all of them. But a lot of them look at you like a like an exotic spice. You know? Which is weird to be looked at. Like, you know? We've… Uh, yeah. We… we uh, <laughs> now that you're saying that, I'm, I'm remembering a conversation where you said there was this one white girl that would always tell you to speak in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking Spanish when you hit it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I uh, hope my wife doesn't hear this. Well. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there's well. A, there, there's, a, there's a lot of, um, of family-friendly content, too. It's a, it's a mix. Can't, you can't yeah, be… Yeah. Yeah. Something I wanted to uh, get back to is the internal drive that you were talking about before as learning how to fight when you were a teenager and growing up in the Bronx, do you think that gave you the level of personal accountability to like, quote unquote, lift yourself out of that situation? Not that it was that simple, but it's, it seems like everyone's always on one side of the spectrum or the other. One side of the spectrum is everyone's fucked. That grows up poor. No one can ever help themselves. They need to have everything handed to them. And then the other side is, no, you have to be personally accountable for 100%. You lift yourself up. You don't need any help. And there's definitely a space in the middle where you can acknowledge that, sure, people need to be personally accountable. But also, there are a lot of people that have need help to get to a level where they can survive first and not worry about a bunch of that bullshit. Do you think Muay Thai gave you that level of a person personal accountability that allowed you to kind of escape the the fates of other people you knew. Definitely. Definitely. I definitely think that. I because you know, like being like 17, fighting like grown men who are like pro Muay Thai fighters in their 30s who are like six foot four and this being that age or or doing jujitsu and, and and taking down a dude who's like three times my size at that age, you know, I think it made it easier for me to go through the those environments and be like not afraid and therefore not make it an ego thing. You know, because if I see a dude who's coming at me on the train, he's yelling at me or or, or just some guy in the hood, you know what I mean? Who's defending th- my manhood in that moment, you know? Because I've kind of proven to myself already in another environment, you know? I don't need to prove it here. And then because I've dealt with like uh, being hurt before physically and having to keep fighting in life when stuff got hard, you know, it wasn't that hard. It wasn't as hard as getting kicked in the head. Yeah. You know, so I, I definitely think it, it definitely helped. Yeah. That's something I wanted to ask you is in a fight, in a controlled fight where there's a ref, it's a, it's a competition. You're not just brawling with some dude on the street. What is it like being in the ring with another man who's trying to beat 
the absolute fuck out of you. That's not a sparring session. Yeah, yeah. I've never been in a situation like that where it's a sanctioned fight. Ref is there to stop it if someone's yeah. gonna fucking die. Yeah, but other yeah, than that, yeah, like, yeah. you gotta beat the fuck out of the dude or get the shit beaten out of you. What is that like? Well, first of all, it's fun. It looks fun. It is a good time. It is a for good time. Winner. Yeah. For the winner, it looks fun. Yeah, as a, yeah, for the winner. Yeah, but um, I think it's it's tiring more than anything. That that's what people don't really anticipate. I think the first fight you have, which I hope you get to compete amateurly one day, you'll realize like holy fuck, like you know, like it's that one minute. You're that first minute you're in there, you're just exhausted, mm-hmm. and uh, because everything is so heightened. You don't really feel everything in the moment, you know? But once you're done, I definitely, my my jaw is like hurting. And I'm like, there are fights where like I fought dudes and I just like finished them quickly. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize they hit me. And then after the fight, I'm like, wow, my jaw feels like, you know, I, I, I think uh, everything's faster paced, especially when you're in there with a fighter too. Like they, uh, they make reads that are very quick. Mm-hmm. And so like one mistake, they see that mistake and you can never do that again in the match you know it's you you do your jab a little low in that one moment so you have one chance to do something with a good fighter and then if yeah if you get through they'll most likely make an adjustment yeah something i didn't realize too is the what you alluded to is the cardio aspect of it Mm -hmm. this cardio aspect of fighting even in sparring or doing rounds with pads you for whatever reason i don't as someone who was just watching fighting up until eight, nine months ago, I never really thought it was going to be an insane cardio workout. Because I guess maybe because how easy the guys make it look. Yeah, yeah. Where rare, like you, you'll see a guy breathing heavy in maybe the fourth or fifth round, but if they're a professional fighter, they're probably like, they're just like calm, composed. They've been fighting for 15 minutes and they still just like rocking back and forth. I did not expect being absolutely fucking gassed after two rounds of pads when I first started. And I didn't realize how important cardio is as a fighter. Cause it literally, like you can't think when you're tired, you stop making smart decisions, which is something I learned from baseball too. It's just a different trying to throw for seven, eight innings is its own type of cardio where you're applying a lot of force, you know, 90, 100 times, however many pitches you throw. And then you have 30 seconds to kind of gather it and then apply as much force as you can in between pitches. But to like have to constantly have your hands up, be thinking about, okay, how is this, how is this dude going to hit me? How is he not going to hit me? What's this combination that he just said? Like when I'm tired and obviously you notice too, like the first thing that goes is like when you say a combo and I just like, instantly forget what you just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. just like, wait, what? And then the first first few rounds of pads, you say it, and I'm like, all right, you got that. And then the first thing I notice is that when you say it, I can't, like, I can't think. I can either throw with my body or mm-hmm. think. So there's this slight pause in between of me trying yeah. to figure it out. And I guess it, that's amplified in the ring with another dude trying to beat the fuck out of you, which is why it's so dangerous to go in the ring without your cardio up. That's the biggest fear, I think. I'm not afraid to be hurt by someone. I'm more afraid to be in there and be exhausted and like not have good cardio. So I, I a lot of fighters like really work on their cardio a lot. You know, um, every fighter does. Every fighter does. There are some who need to work on it more than others. You know, I'm not going to name any names, but there are them. 
who are out there who the trick is for young fighters, I think, or for anyone who just wants to get better cardio, just run. Just run. Muhammad Ali did it. It worked out great for him. Like everyone, all the greats ran. So just run and, uh, you know, you'll be better. You know what I mean? Who do you look to as a fighter that really inspires you right now, whether it's Muay Thai or MMA? Who's, who's a guy or gal that you look to that has their shit together where you're like, oh, fuck. Like every time I see this person fight, I always pick up on something new. Probably uh, Israel Adesanya. That guy is... That guy's. Uh, he's an artist, bro. Like what he does in there is like... It's a piece of art. Is there anything in particular that stands out about his game? Because he... As someone who sees him and doesn't really know exactly everything he's doing from a technical standpoint, like he's so far ahead of me, obviously. Like I can appreciate it, but I don't understand it fully is there something that he does that sticks out to you that maybe a casual fan misses where you see it and you're like oh fuck like this is the reason why he's successful i think it's a combination of things with him i think number one it's he obviously has his fundamentals mastered and he also coming from a muay thai background has like so many tools in his toolbox as a striker he's not just a boxer he doesn't just have the left hand or the right hand he has his elbows, his knees, he switches stances. And yes, he's very dynamic in those aspects. But his biggest thing with me that impresses me is that when he's fighting, as soon as that bell rings, he's in there and he is fainting, fainting, making reads, making decisions. He's paying attention to what's going on. And uh, he's not like falling in love with the crowd, trying to hurt you. He's seeing what's going to work and what's not. And he doesn't do anything that's unnecessary. He makes a faint. Reads you. Okay, I'm going to throw a low kick here. Pop. Mm-hmm. Like he just kind of reads you and then he, he makes that calculation. And then three rounds later, he executes you with that calculation that he made three rounds ago. And that is like... So he has very efficient movements. And then he's also... While he's moving efficiently, he's also learning how he's going to beat you later. He's not, he's not in a huge rush to knock you out in the first round. Yeah. Yeah. He calculates everything and he downloads information and... Yes, he, he does have a lot of movements down pack, but it's also that he can do so many movements. And like he'll see, a, for instance, like he'll make a feint on you. He'll see an opening and be like, okay, if I throw the left hand, that might be a little short. There's this kick that maybe I could throw it, but like maybe you've never thrown that kick. He'll just throw that kick. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He'll just make whatever adjustment. He'll make up that combo to throw that thing and just do it and attack you and hurt you. You know, and that's what, a, what I like about him. You know, the read and then the ability to just execute whatever maneuver he needs to in order to hurt you. Yeah, it seems like he's very calculated with what he does. Yeah. That's something that I feel like started to click for me in a very small way around the five or six month mark since we've been training is how much, how calculated and how sort of mathematical fighting is where if someone... If someone throws a jab or jab cross, faint, body kick, there are all these little sort of defenses where you can decide, all right, am I going to get out of the way of this? Am I going to strike when this happens? Am I going to get out of the way, then strike? Am I? So it's like all these little things that in a s- small way for me, since I haven't been doing it that long, I'm still, you know, fucking Muay Thai baby. But, uh, but, uh, knowing how many different things there are 
to do in defense to a single shot. And also some of those things becoming instinctual to where you want to, you know, parry and then hit him with a cross or slip cross. And so it's like around the five, six month mark, I felt like my body starting to like anticipate certain moves rather than waiting for you to call it. And then I would do it. It would almost be like, even though you didn't call it, I'd feel like I wanted to do that because I knew it was a defense for this. If I, like, if I was fighting someone in real life, it would make sense. It would yeah. make more sense to yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good that you realize that. That's a good thing. Good teacher. Yeah. Th- thank you. That's uh, I wanted to get into what are the biggest differences for you or what, what are the skill sets that have been most advantageous for you as a teacher? Because it's one thing to be a good fighter. I know as a baseball player, just because you can play baseball doesn't necessarily mean you're a great teacher of baseball. What for you has made the difference being able to teach clients so well and be able to translate that knowledge that you have and the, the body movements that you have into people of all different backgrounds and athletic levels and different goals? What, what has been a difference maker for you for teaching that's made the biggest difference? I think the biggest thing has just been like getting to the point, probably taking out the nonsensical training, taking that out and just telling you what it is you need to know. That's been the biggest thing. And I think that's why like a lot of trainers aren't good trainers is because um, they don't know how to just get to the point of what you need to know. I might give you something. So there's a lot of nonsense that goes on yeah. in fighting where people, yeah. you may be teaching someone someone that, something that they don't need to know. Yeah. It's a lot of nonsense. A lot of like, like yeah, you got to throw this jab 800 times in a row, go up and down the room. And like, that's good for the first session, but like they'll make you do that a million times or they'll make you jump rope for 30 minutes straight. You know what I mean? And it's just, there's a lot of like waste of time things. That's like, okay, like you could be taking your time and like learning how to fight. Like you can run, we were talking about cardio. You can run all you want, you know what I mean? But if you don't know how to fight, there's no point in you having that good cardio. Yeah. So I I think the main thing for me is just, or any trainer is to just get rid of like the nonsensical stuff and just teach you what you need to know. You know, like if I throw a jab at you and I taught you how to throw a jab, basically teach you like what leg you need to bounce off of, how you parry, block, slip, roll that. You know what I mean? Just all the stuff you need to know in order to counter that. Not, Not just like, like this is how you throw a jab. But like, I'm not going to teach you how to set up how to throw that jab. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, doesn't make sense. You know, just just giving you what you need. Yeah. I, and I, I feel like you've done a great job with that from the student perspective where I, I feel like I've progressed at, at, at my level in a relatively quick amount of time for the amount of time that I've put in. Because definitely I've putting two, you know, hour, hour and a half sessions. So two to three hours a week for six months really isn't that much to get better at something. It, it's definitely going to make an effect. But with baseball, doing that shit, you know, anywhere between four, eight hours a day for years, something I wish I thought about more with baseball is how much bang for my buck am I getting from this exercise? What is, is this actually making me a better baseball player? Or is this something that is tradition or someone that something told me to do that's part of the game that actually isn't getting me closer to my goal of throwing harder, throwing more accurately, being a better overall pitcher. And I feel like you trim the fat so well in terms of, okay, this, these are your goals. 
this is what's going to get you there faster. So let's do this. Let's spar this amount. Let's, let's do these combos. Let's do this amount of cardio. I feel like you've done a good job at trimming the fat. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I try to do. I don't, I don't want to waste your time. And, and, uh, I also just don't want to like, just take your money or something like that. Like, like I love Muay Thai and uh, I love fighting. And even if I didn't do Muay Thai or compete in Muay Thai, I would do something combative in my life, which is also why I'm going to the army. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going, that's also why I'm going. I'm not going because of the benefits. I'm not going because I feel lost with my life or something like that. I'm going because I want to be in combat. That's what I want. I love the skill set. I love combat. You know, it's, I want to be in that kind of place. That's how I am. You know, I love learning about combat and learning the actual skill of fighting. You know? When, when did you realize that you wanted to be in the army? A long time ago. A long time ago. Well, I didn't know the army per se. I was still looking for the right. Some sort of combat of experience. Yeah, so- something. Something. Um, I just decided on the army infantry just because like… I think definitely one day special forces might be a route that I'm, I'm going to attempt to go down. Combat is just something I love. So once I realized that I love combat, it was easy for me to just be like, I'm going to go over there and go do that. You know, people keep telling me like, oh, you know, are you afraid to die? This and that. Yeah, man, <laughs> dude, like I'm afraid to get head kicked unconscious with a flying knee or, yeah. you know what I mean? Or, you know, I'm afraid of all that stuff, but you know. It is what it is. Like, if this is what you want to do, you got to go do it. You know, if you know the consequences and you can deal with the consequences of those things, go do it. Also, you know, I have a degree. I'm not a stupid person. I have clients. It's not like, it's not like I joined the army as like a crutch. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You already, you have a business for yourself. You're training clients. Yeah. Yeah. So it's something that you wanted to do for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. There's a purpose and reason that I'm going there. And I, and I think if anyone joins the military, I, I think that's the one thing I would say is like, you got to have a purpose for joining. Don't just go because you're escaping your problems or go because you need some sort of skill set, whether that be construction. But even then, like maybe you need benefits. You know, me being a kid from the Bronx, like I do... I could not afford college, bro. Mm. Like I couldn't, you know, I had to, unless, unless I was like somehow super duper smart, which I had really good grades in high school. I don't know how I just, I did really well. So I was able to get like a lot of scholarships, but the majority of my friends didn't. And I imagine it's different going into the army 23, 24 years old than going into the army when you're 17, 18 and maybe... Mm-hmm. You would have made a different decision if you waited a little bit longer. Maybe, maybe you would have made the same decision. But it seems like there are a lot of younger guys that get into the army right out of high school and mm-hmm. maybe are thinking, what the fuck did I get myself into without actually... Like it was more of a instinctual yeah. decision rather than thinking through what am I getting out of being in the army? How does this align with what I want to do in my life? And so you seem like you have a really clear purpose that we, we've talked about being an MP or special forces. Like, you know what mm-hmm. you want to do eventually. Yeah. I originally wanted to do MP, but I just decided on infantry just because like, like I said, I wanted a, a rough and tough, like kind of like combat lifestyle. And not, not to like talk about it. Like, oh, I want a rough and tough. You know what I mean? Not to sound like, you know, like a douche or anything. Just because like I want that experience, you know? I'm used to waking up, training twice a day, running for hours on end, you know? And that's what I wanted. I wanted a tough lifestyle with it. And I didn't, I didn't, like I said, I didn't go for, for the BS, you know, I didn't go to march in line and, yeah. and stuff like that, or, or for, you know, America and all that type of stuff. You know, I, I went because I wanted combat 
And uh, I've thought about it for a long time. It wasn't a split decision. But when I went to go to MEPS and to go to all these different, like the procedural things you need to, to get in, there were a lot of young people who are like young lost. Uh, like I was told earlier today, like uh, young de- degenerate kind of mm-hmm. kids, you know? Yeah. Who I feel bad for because they haven't really thought about what they want to do properly. And I'll be like, why are you here? And they'll be like, I'm not sure. I'm like, that's not good. Yeah, this is not a good place to be, not be sure why you're here. I feel like the U.S. military needs to do a better job at marketing to to young, responsible adults who want to serve their community versus like trying to make everyone like taking the lost people. You know what I mean? I feel like we need to do a better job at like getting rid of the approach in the army or the Marine Corps as like young guerrilla type person, mm-hmm. more like an educated warrior, you know, his approach I think might be better. Could you see yourself following the precedent that Tim Kennedy set where he's going to be in the armed forces at the same time and take fights professionally? Could you see yourself training for a professional fight or maybe even like not, cause it's hard to do a full training camp. I yeah. assume while you're, he was a, I think he's a Green Beret. Yeah, he's a Green Beret. I assume you can't really do a full... You don't have the luxury of stopping your life for 12 weeks and doing a full training camp. It sounds... It seems like it's more... Yeah, I have a fight two weeks before I'll get ready for it. But like I'm I'm over... I'm like in Iraq right now. So yeah, I yeah. I'll take care of it when I get back. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure... I'm sure he, well, he's in the National Guard actually. Okay. So he's in like the Special Forces component uh, of the National Guard, which he, they, they get a little bit more time off, you know? But um, I do know that uh, the lifestyle in general of the combat jobs in the army is you're running every day. A lot mm-hmm. of a lot of guys that I know who are in the infantry in other states, they fight at the same time because like all they do is combat. You know, they're sparring in their normal jobs. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of, it's an easy transition, you know? W- will you be able to train while you're in the army? Are there, are there a lot of guys that want to fight or do, do jujitsu train Muay Thai while they're, while they're there? Yeah, for sure. There's also a lot of guys who don't do that stuff, but um, there's also a, a ton of guys who do. So I, I'm going to be one of those guys who do. And uh, I'm trying to do pro Muay Thai and the army at the same time, as well as like training clients. And uh, hopefully somewhere in between that, you know, have a family. <laughs> yeah. Mix it in. Mix, mix it in. Mix yeah, it in yeah. there. Yeah. Who are some of the craziest sparring experiences that you've had? Because you've talked about a couple where you've sparred with some big guys and you felt their power and what it was like to go up against them. What are some of the standout experiences that you've had sparring face-to-face with some some more well-known dudes? Definitely cleanliness of their style, like mm-hmm. how clean it was. Um, the speed at which they deliver their techniques the understanding of the defense positionally where they are and where they aren't, you know, a lot of the things I'm saying are not the popular things mm-hmm. that people want to hear, you know, but it's the truth. Like, you know, there, there's a certain cleanliness to them in terms of their technique and, and understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. But the main thing is mentality. Is there, is there anyone that you saw on TV and then for the first time when you faced them in person, you were like, Oh fuck. Like, <laughs> this is not, this is, I'm like feeling what I saw them do technically on TV. And this is kind of fucking wild. No, actually, no. I've actually felt the opposite. I've actually really? felt, I've sparred guys who are pretty bigger named and like been like, wow, you're not that good. You know, like you're really not that good. You, a lot of the guys, like you see a lot of guys with crazy records, like 20 and 0, they fought like 20 cab drivers, you know, yeah. to, <laughs> to get there, you know, and, and, like there are some guys who are really good that I spar them like, damn, like that's why you're known for that, you know? 
But then there are guys I've sparred where I've been like, I don't see, you know, but but some dudes just have horrible sparring. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Some like dudes, they get good when the lights turn on and yeah. then sparring, they might not be as good. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that could also be it too. You know, there are guys who, when it's time to come and like throw down and when the lights are on, man, they perform. So, you know, I really can't always say, you know. Who, who are some of the guys that you like might not be as well known, but when you spar with them, especially in Muay Thai, because not as many people watch Muay Thai, are there any guys that stand out to you that are super memorable sparring sessions because they had like crazy energy or you just weren't expecting it? Like any, any sparring sessions in particular that stand out? There's a few people. Number one, a guy named Chris Masseri. He lives in upstate New York now. He trains at a place uh, called Stockade Muay Thai. And that guy is uh, one of the best Muay Thai fighters in the country. That guy's so humble, but man, he is so like, his style translated to me. When you watch his fights, he's, he's all about the blood and the gore. And when we fought and we sparred each other, um, it was very like, yeah, he's rough and tough. But what surprised me was just how technical he was in addition to that toughness. You know, he was just, man, he was just everything, everything, very calculated. I, the only thing I think I landed in that one sparring session, like he didn't really go at me. I didn't really go at him, but that I threw a jab to the body on him. And I, that that's the only thing I was trying to mm-hmm. set up the whole round because like being across from like the number two guy in the country, you yeah. know, there's a little bit of a presence that they have where you're like, okay, let me not kick him too hard. He's a, he's the number two guy in… At the time in, he was. At the, at time. the time. In the U.S.? In the number, yeah. In the new, he was uh, number two in the U.S. at the time. Damn. Yeah. And so you were trying to get that that body shot the whole round. And then when yeah. you got it, you were I, like, fuck yeah. Yeah, got yeah, that yeah. Shit yeah. In. <laughs> got that jab Fucking to the got body. that, baby. Fucking got that, baby. That's how, that's how I feel when I spar you. If I get in one good <laughs> shot in a round, I'm just like, yeah. got that shit. Even though I've just been <laughs> like kicked 40 times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts on the the recent... YouTube sensations like Logan Paul, Jake Paul getting into the fight game because it seems like some some people have a problem or some people have a problem with it in the fight community where they're not really respecting the process of working your way up the ranks, becoming a good fighter, you know, maybe running your mouth at, at someone you shouldn't be because you're, you know, you've never uh, fought professionally or you, or you've never fought like another professional fighter and I could also see, see the other side of it where you're bringing more attention to the sport there are a lot of guys on the undercard that normally wouldn't get that many viewers but they're fighting on the undercard and it's like they're bringing other dudes in with them it's not just that they are the main event but there are also other people that are benefiting from it what, what are your thoughts on guys like the like the Logan Paul Mayweather fight or Jake Paul Ben Askren I mean, number one, I'm happy for them. I think that's great. You know what I mean? Like, I would want to fight Mayweather. You know what I mean? For for a gajillion dollars. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy for them, you know? I do think they're taking advantage of uh, the commoner's viewpoint of fighting. For instance, like Logan Paul and Mayweather. Obviously, Logan doesn't stand a chance. He's doing it for the money. But Jake Paul and Ben Askren, Jake Paul is very smart. He's very smart because... He understands the sport enough. He knows he can beat Ben Askren. And I actually think he will beat him. You think Jake Paul will beat Ben Askren? In in a boxing match. I think he's going to beat him. He's actually been training boxing for years now. And he understands that a really good amateur boxer, like with a good skill set in amateur boxing, 
can beat a pro MMA fighter in a boxing match. He knows that. He knows that. And uh, especially Ben, who has atrocious striking, even yeah. though he's… What's his foundation? Jiu-jitsu or… Uh, wrestling. Wrestling. American okay. wrestling. But, you know, there are a lot of wrestlers with good striking. It's just, he is not one of them. He's not one of those guys. And uh, he's also not particularly very athletic. I, I don't want to hate on him or anything like that or, you know, because Ben Askren, he's done so much in the sport of MMA. But I, I do think like, uh, I just know that Jake un has a certain understanding of combat sports from like an internal, you know, from, from a, mm -hmm. he has the perspective of a fighter. He's got a fighter's mentality. So he understands the sport enough. He know he knows he'll beat him in a boxing match. Yeah. And he's taking, he's making that money and he's making a smart move. I'm, I, I think it's smart, honestly. Yeah. No, that, that's interesting that you think uh, Jake Paul is being smarter about it than Logan. So I, at first, yeah. at first when, uh, when Jake called out Conor McGregor and said all that shit about his wife and, you know, told him Ireland to go fuck themselves and what I, that whole rant. At first I, I thought this kid is so stupid. Why, why would you ever think that you could get into something with McGregor? And then, a few weeks went by, a month went by, and I started thinking about it. And Jake Paul, younger than Logan, saw his brother build a social media base from Vine, YouTube, got to watch a master content creator in Logan Paul. He's, you know, probably the best at getting attention with content on the planet. And so I don't... When I started thinking about it like that and zooming out, I thought, okay... And it's when those other fighters started coming in to Jake and saying, fight me instead. I'll do it for less money than Connor or all this. I thought, okay, maybe Jake knows that Connor would not have taken that. There's a 0. 0.00001 shot in hell that Connor McGregor would ever say yes to that. But did he do that to get attention on himself and then lure in other professional fighters? To say like, okay, this dude wants to fight Conor McGregor. That opens the door. I'm assuming he's going to be open to other offers from other fighters like Ben Askren. And I saw some other, uh, some other kickboxers were calling him out too on Instagram. And uh, to me, that if he did that, that seems like a really smart move because he's getting attention on himself. He's not fighting Conor McGregor and he's getting paid. So it's like he used the Conor McGregor taunt as a lure to bring other fighters to him and thinking about like, he's kind of more of like a gorilla than his brother. He, he, he seems like uh, he can kind of play up that stupid aspect and like, Oh, I'm Jake Paul. Like, I don't know. But I think behind the scenes, he seems like you can't not be smart about content when you've been watching your older brother do it for years. And now you get to see him make all the mistakes in front of you. And I'm going to, capitalize on that but dude he's also smart like from a fighter perspective like he's definitely a genius when it comes to content 100 mm -hmm. but he understands like i'll tell you the truth like a guy like ben Askren, great 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 mma fighter don't ever fight him in an mma fight zach don't <laughs> but if you train boxing by yourself for about three to four years and you fought ben Askren in a month you could probably beat him in a boxing match you could probably do it so the fact that Jake Paul has been training for years and he's taking a f and Ben Askren's taking a fight on shorter notice, you think that Jake Paul has the the better shot because of? No, I, I just think I just know for I know for, I know how the levels and striking are in each of the sports, and I know that 
a really good high-level amateur skill set in boxing, you can beat a pro MMA fighter in a boxing match. A lot of those pro MMA fighters don't have good, especially Ben Askren, doesn't have a good boxing foundation. And I do think in a boxing ring, I, I don't think he's going to beat him. He's so smart. He, he understands fighting. He knows he's going to do it. I'm telling you, three years of you training boxing, you go into a boxing match, even with a pro fighter who does MMA, if it's just a boxing match, you're going to have a lot more success. Obviously, MMA, don't, don't do it. <laughs> you know, it's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, but I, I would need more notoriety as a podcaster first to start calling yeah. people out. So uh, yeah, we talked about it. I mean, it's exciting. It's exciting to see content creators that actually have a foundation in fighting that aren't, that aren't just taking it for granted and going to the ring. Like I, I think Logan Paul knows that he's about to get the fuck beaten out of him by Floyd Mayweather, but oh, yeah. uh, he's also, he's got that side of him where he wants yeah. attention. He's great at it. He knows what he's doing. Same thing with Jake Paul. So it is fascinating for me as a podcaster to see that, okay, if I wanted to, and I had enough of an audience behind me in the future, that is an option where you can, in a sense, skip the line of working your way up from mm -hmm. the bottom of an organization like UFC, yeah. where yeah. you are a professional fighter to calling out someone who's fighting or someone who's a celebrity where like, yeah, I'll probably get my ass beat, but I'm not going to die and I'll make some money. And it will be like a cool eight to 12 week experience leading up to it. Yeah. I, I do think like there's kind of a thing where you're kind of skipping the line a little bit. You know, like there's a lot of fighters who like probably deserve to be there yeah. a hell of a but lot in, more. In their defense though, they are giving a lot of fighters on the undercard notoriety on the, the streaming true. services because they are, they, true, true, I true. think they did have three or four fights below them the last time. Yeah, yeah, true. With guys that I probably wouldn't have watched if I didn't see the fight. Yeah, so they, the they fight, are bringing yeah. some guys with them. They, they definitely are. But I, I think a lot of fighters feel that way. I don't personally care. You know what I mean? Make your money, bro. Happy for you. You know, if you did that, dude, I'd be happy for you. You know what I mean? You'd be on the card for sure. I'd be, oh, I'd be on the card. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. If you weren't in the main event. If I wasn't in the main event. <laughs> yeah. who, who, so who's, a, who's someone that you think would be a fun person to fight like an exciting person that's not a professional fighter, but you think would actually be an entertaining fight where you would still beat them, but they would at least give you some sort of worry where you're like, oh, this dude could actually bang a little bit. You know who I think could, could probably bang a little bit actually? Like more than probably bang a little Ooh. bit? Jason Statham. I feel like Jason Statham could… I feel like Jason Statham is like low-key like done some crazy things in bars or something <laughs> like you know and that scene in the original transporter yeah where he covers himself in fucking grease oil and then he puts on the bike pedals on his feet and he detaches it and uses it to fucking head kick people with these bicycle pedals I would be I would be nervous to to fight Jason Statham nah nah I wouldn't want to fight him <laughs> especially you know dudes with British accents always feel like you, they know what you're, they're talking about more than uh, they actually do. You could, pl you could play up the accent, the, the British society life. One thing I wanted to go into is a quote that I was reading in GSP's book, George St. Pierre. And it's called The Way of the Fight. And we talked about it a little bit. And I picked out one of my favorite quotes from the book. And, and this is from the BJ Penn fight where he started out kind of getting his ass kicked in the first round and then came back to beat BJ Penn. 
He said it was simply the observation of what should have been obvious facts. Most people overlook obvious facts. And he was talking about the way that he made adjustments to eventually beat BJ Penn. For you, what are some obvious facts that people overlook in Muay Thai and, and fighting in general? That Like things that are so obvious that, that people don't pay as much attention to it as they should, or especially as a beginner coming into it, things that people tend to overlook that are should be right in front of their face? Uh, well, probably range. Range. People, I, I don't think people are aware of like, I, I, matter of fact, I don't think only civilians or regular people are or common people who don't practice the sport, you know, even people who practice the sport aren't like aware sometimes of like their range, you know, and, and how close in proximity, like you can be hurt, you know, like from this range right here, you could punch me in the face. You know what I mean? Like, like and, I, and I feel like, uh, I feel like even fighters sometimes when they fight, people who aren't trained, they kind of like, I don't know. They, they kind of just, they underestimate the range. You know, I think that's ranging in a fight. Like, you know, and there's also different ranges between boxing, Muay Thai, MMA. There's different ranges. So that would be my main thing. It's just range. I know that's kind of like a, a really like in-depth answer. Like what, what the hell is range? No, I mean, well, like ra- range is so... Range is a good answer because it's one of those things that's so obvious where you see it in front of your face. You ca- you can't hide your range as as a fighter. You know when you have enough distance between someone and you know when you're within striking distance. But for whatever reason, when I'm watching fights or when I'm sparring especially, I forget about my range where it's a difference of centimeters where someone is hitting you, like raising you or knocking you out. And it seems like a lot of the guys like Adesanya, you mentioned before, are masters of moving in and out of range and where they, you can kind of relax when you're out of someone's range because you know, like no matter what this guy do, does, his fist is going to stop here. And then when you move into someone's range and being able to handle that. So I feel like that's definitely something obvious that I don't think about as much, especially in sparring. Yeah, it's, a, it's important. It's important to think about. I, I know like as a shorter guy too, like I have no problem fighting taller people because I've always you know, I'm always a shorter guy. So I, I had to get better at it. But for sure, like, I think people who are untrained, if you're a shorter person, master range. That's really obvious. You know what I mean? And But people just tend to think that like, like fight is like an anime, you know, yeah. where they'll like, they'll conjure up the, the strength of their ancestors or something. And <gasps> yeah, like, you're, like you're leveling up. Like yeah, a yeah, just, yeah, <gasps> yeah. 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 <laughs> You know, they think that's what it is. And nah, just, you got to learn how to like master your range too. And like how to hit and not get hit. Like that seems very simple, but that's kind of the truth. Hit, don't get hit. You know, learn how to get in and out of range and aware aware of someone's range as well. Are you open to talking about microdosing and fighting? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I microdosed today. <laughs> Perfect. So, all right. This is, this is something I, I wanted to, to touch on because I have, I've trained with, a shot or two in me. Okay. Of whiskey. <laughs> I, I did a microdose. I've never smoked and smoked weed and trained for you. What is your favorite, favorite out of those three to drink, to train on that? We've talked about smoking weed, being a little bit buzzed and microdosing. What, what's your favorite and, and what makes it your favorite? Uh, microdosing. Microdosing for sure. I, I feel like 
when I microdose, I internalize things differently. And I feel like I almost like uh, go back into like the archives of my mind and I can like look at different striking material from years ago and remember it and be able to, you know, utilize that stuff. Like some of the stuff I was saying about uh, Israel, like I feel like I can almost see those things a little bit better when I take that microdose and I start training, you know, but I don't use it for like day-to-day life. I just use it more for my training. But um, yeah, the internalizing part of it. Marijuana, I feel like I feel sluggish when I train and drinking. I mean, I feel loose, but I feel dehydrated. Mm -hmm. So for me, you know, microdosing works. Do you feel like you can see things before they happen when they microdose or pick up on things earlier? Because I have heard fighters talk about, for whatever reason, shrooms gives them a sixth sense almost where they can sense what someone's going to do before they actually do it. I could see someone saying that. I have never had that experience personally. I've more felt like uh, more in touch with my movement. Like I felt like I could move easier. I don't know if that makes sense, but I felt like for me going from point A to point B, it was a lot faster. So like there have been times where I've sparred on microdosing where like I haven't been touched at all in sparring mm-hmm. with like a really high caliber fighting. I just, it, I was just like in a flow state, you know, mm-hmm. that was just unique. But definitely, I don't know, anticipating their movements before all that psychic stuff. I don't know. Maybe I, I haven't, I haven't uh, gone that deep. You know? Yeah, you just haven't been to Mars yet. Yeah, I just haven't been to Mars <laughs> Neither yet. Neither have I. The, the microdoses I've taken have been legit microdoses where it's a tenth of a dose. So whatever it is, it's working in the background. It's not, it's something that I could, I easily do work on. I don't notice anything changing around me, colors, whatever. It's, I feel like it's more for creativity, mood. Yeah. For me, at least, that's what I've gotten out of it. And the couple of times that I've trained on it, the day that I took the mushrooms, I don't know if I noticed anything, like nothing that would have jumped out at me. Like, oh, like I saw that shot before it was <laughs> yeah. coming. But it was yeah, more yeah, just yeah. like my, like I felt like slightly uplifted mood and maybe I was putting things together a little bit more quickly, like combinations and things like that. Drinking before like a shot or two. I've tried that. And I feel like it's an energy boost in the beginning. Uh-huh. And then halfway through the session, I'm just like, oh, like I'm flat for the last part. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, I get really like a uh, cotton mouth afterwards, you know? What would you say is your special talent as a fighter? What makes you better than, what do you do that's better than most fighters? That's like you, the thing that you hone in on that allows you to break other fighters down. That you've beaten. What separates me from other fighters is probably like, I do have a very diverse tool set. A lot of fighters don't tend to have, like some fighters are more boxing based. I can kick, I can punch, I can elbow, I can knee, I can clear, I can do everything. But that's not what separates me. I think what separates me is my ability to just change style on you. Like I can fight you at one pace, one rhythm, and then completely change the type of fighter I am and the tool set that's necessary to fight you. And uh, that's something that is unique to me, or or at least a lot of fighters can't do. And uh, presence also, like when I need to like give you a presence, an energy, or I need to dominate the space. Uh, for certain people, I can do that. Obviously, for clients, I don't do that. But uh, for real fights, is there anything? Is there any truth to not jerking off or having sex before a fight? Does that ma- does that make you do better in any way? Have you ever fucked around with? doing that where you're just like, I'm not going to bust a nut for three weeks before this fight and see what happens. 
Um, nah, I I've tried it once or, once or twice, you know, for camps. What's it? What's the Yelp review? What, what's your review <laughs> for the the no fab? It's my breakdown. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's more down to mentality. I feel like if you're just a savage and you're gonna beat this dude's ass, like. You're going to do it regardless of whether or not you jerk mm-hmm. off or not the night before. I, I There's some scientific data to back up like testosterone and whatnot. But I don't know. I feel like if I bust one nut and I can't win a fight, you know, yeah, it's kind of my fault. It's not really the nuts fault, you know? See, my mentality is you do it in the celebration, you knock him out and then you bust a nut on him as like yeah. a, a, <laughs> as a show of your dominance. And then also you're getting a forearm workout recovery too ah, after, okay. after the fight. So makes sense. Makes that's sense. how I want to mix it in. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. The last question I had for you is, if you met a copy of yourself, same resources, same experiences, same problems, someone who's been through all the same shit yeah. that you've been and has access to the, the same resources as you, mm-hmm. what advice would you give that person? What would you tell that person? Well, I would tell younger Houston, stop chasing pussy. <laughs> Stop chasing all these different girls. Stop chasing hoes. Stop chasing hoes. Yeah, that's, that's what I tell them. I tell them, believe more in yourself. And uh, I'd also tell them, go where you need to go to get what you need. I think a lot of times as a young man, especially for fighting, I stayed in one place too long with a certain culture too long because I was afraid of like abandoning them or like feeling like a disloyal student when in actuality, they weren't giving me what I needed. And uh, at the end of the day, I'm the one walking in there fighting where like the consequences are that I might lose my consciousness. You know, they're not going to, you know, even if they are there for you, they're not the one in there. And so if, if I can lessen my chances of getting concussed by going to a different coach, I would, I would tell myself to so do be, that. Be more selfish about your mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And about your training, be more selfish about your training. What's the saying uh, about pussy? No, or no, a lot of people have lost money chasing pussy, but no one's ever lost pussy chasing money or, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. True. True. It's a, good, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good spot to to end off. Get the bag, get the pussy. Two, two come hand in hand. Yeah, two come hand in hand. And, and if you are going to chase a girl, not that it's not worth it. Just, you know, it's got to be the right girl. Yeah, it's got to be the right girl. Well, thank you, Houston, for yeah. hopping on the podcast. We're going to go train now. Yeah, we're going to kick some ass. Yeah. All right, bro. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Auxoro podcast. If this show has moved and inspired you in some small way, we would appreciate you taking the time to send this show to someone else you care about. The best way to spread love is to share what you love. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at at Auxoro and tune into our channel on YouTube by searching Auxoro for the video versions of these conversations. See you guys next time, motherfucker.